You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Invite you to get your Bibles out. Turn to Colossians chapter two this morning. Moving on in the book of Colossians, might encourage you. Um, I was looking through, a, I was reading some article that was talking about how long it takes you to read various portions of Scripture, and the Gospels all take you, you know, hour or two hour to read. But these epistles back here, you can read in 12 to 15 minutes. So I might encourage you, um, just as we go through Colossians, to maybe take some time this week and in future weeks to maybe just once a week just sit down for 12, 15 minutes and just read the, the whole book. I mean, it's, it's a doable thing to get through, to just sit down and read through to kind of get the larger ethos of the book. Right now, this morning, we're, we're down in chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. We've already talked about 6 and 7, but in an effort to kind of get the flow of Paul's thought, we're going to just read a large section here together. So this is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So you might keep this text out. We're going to look at a few things. But I wanted to read this larger section this morning because there is a big idea that Paul is working on. And we've been working our way slowly through this text over several weeks now. And it's, it's good and beneficial to go slowly. And I, as, as a believer that um, every word of God is the word of God, I believe in verbal plenary inspiration, which is the fancy term for saying that the very words that were used were inspired by God. And so you can work slowly through the text and every word has meaning. And so it's good to go slowly through these things. But 
it's also important that you don't get bogged down staring at a tree and, and miss the beauty of the forest, right? Like it's like spending all your time studying one cloud that you think looks like a dog or a sheep or something, and you miss the whole vista of the sunset, right? You don't want to get so tied up. And now the, the, the cloud that looks like a dog is fun to look at. But, you know, you, you, just, you want to see the whole vista as well. And so that's why I commended to you just to take time to read this whole book. But there's a, a flow of thought that Paul is getting at in, in this section here. In the first chapter, we saw this sweeping declaration of the divinity of Christ. He opens up with a, thanks, a thanksgiving, a prayer for them, and then he goes into this incredible statement about Jesus being Lord, Jesus being the Christ, Christ is supreme, and talking about uh, Jesus being Lord over all. And Paul has spoken of his struggle to get the gospel out to, to everyone that he comes in contact with. He wants everyone to know Jesus and who he is. And now we're getting this encouragement to these Christians to live or to walk in a manner that is deserving of the gospel that they have received. Right? That's kind of how this letter has gone on. And what will require, what this will require out of the Colossian Christians, and indeed out of every Christian that's on this planet is a combating of falsehood, is a combating against and fighting for the truth. And we see that Paul's engaging in this fight from three repetitions. Uh, one of them is in this text, and one, two of them we didn't get to. But if you'll look at verse 8, we reread it. He gives this warning. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. There's a warning here. He's like, Okay, so here's all this great, here's all this grand news. Christ is Lord. Walk in a way that is consistent with your faith. And then also be on guard. See to it that no one takes you captive. And you look on down in verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And then verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And so there's these three sections that Paul is warning don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. There's some sort of activity in the church, at Colossae specifically, but I would say happening historically throughout the history of Christianity, that there are always these movements to try to pull the Christian to either take them captive to a different philosophy or to disqualify them or to pass judgment on them. And Paul is wanting to fight against those voices. He's wanting to, see, he's wanting to fight against these voices. There are these philosophies, and that term we typically think of philosophy as like, uh, you know, you take a philosophy class in a very specific class of thinking, but this is more just general ideas about the, the world, and, and that these philosophies are just different worldviews in a very general way that people are getting caught up in. And he's saying, warning them, don't let anyone deceive you or capture you by these false teachings, these false ideas, these lies, these empty human traditions. They'll try to come in and corrupt what the believer has in Christ there are those who will try and bring judgment against you for not conforming to their certain extra rituals and seek to disqualify you if you don't agree with their spiritual ideas. And so he's saying, be on guard. See to it 
that no one takes you captive by these philosophies, these empty human traditions. So then how is a Christian to combat those things? And I'll be honest, it's, it's a pretty uh, a daunting and impossible task to think that I could somehow get up on a morning like this and talk about every, every conceivable opposition to the Christian worldview that you could come in contact with because they're innumerable. They're, 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 you can't take, it's too much, it would take too much time to try to attack every single one. And so Paul and his argument with them isn't going to then, we don't know specifically, it's interesting. We don't know with 100% certainty what the teachings were. We kind of have ideas when he goes into passing judgment in regards to food and drink and let no one disqualify you because they aren't holding to certain visions of angels and, and ideas and dreams that they've had. So we have kind of an idea, but not really. Because the way that Paul attacks this, you see in this next section, the way that he attacks it is not by naming every specific doctrine that, that's coming against them. And I think there's a reason. Paul, knowing that he is writing the Word of God, this is an authoritative letter to them, has application then for us today, today, though we may not be facing the exact same contrary philosophies that are coming against us. So then how is a Christian to combat all of these various forms of opposition? And I think we find the answer if we notice another repeated concept in this passage, we looked at the repeated concept of the see to it that no one takes you captive, let no one pass judgment, let no one disqualify you. But I, I put the text up on the screens here of another pattern that I want us to, to just notice. And I've highlighted all of these. There's seven of them. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, seven of them in these few verses of this repeated phrase from Paul. And it's the phrase of either in him or with him. Now, if you can't see the screen, it's all right. You can get from the color. I tried to say, see how this is repeated. For in him, the fullness of the deity dwells. We have been filled in him. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made without, made without hands. Having been buried with him, also raised with him. God made us alive together with him. And he put all of these powers to shame, triumphing over them in him. There's this repeated refrain of this union with Christ. How pivotal, how central, how important to this message. If you want to, he's saying, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then he launches into this, this beautiful narrative, this beautiful uh, communication of the Christian's union with Christ. How if you want to keep from being captured by some alternate philosophy, if you want to keep from being captured by some falsehood, the best defense against being captured by a falsehood is being captured by the truth. The best defense against being captured by falsehood is by being captured by the truth. The incredible truth of the union with the supreme Christ is a barricade against falsehood. Because when you are captured by a truly great authority, the lesser authorities that try to capture you don't stand a chance. If you're truly captured by a great authority, the lesser authorities don't stand a chance. For instance, if the FBI or the CIA showed up into this place and they, they arrested you and took you, and then the Ringwald County Sheriff showed up, 
they'd kind of say, yeah, we got this, because a, a kind of federal bigger authority, you know, it's like they, they kind of lose their say. If you've been captured by a greater authority, no offense to the Ringland County Sheriff's, my apologies, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a greater authority. You, the, lesser, the lesser authority doesn't have the weight because you've been captured by something greater. That's what this first warning is communicating. He's saying, don't be taken captive. Don't be captured by these false ideas. And I think the way he's going about it from this text, he's saying, don't be captured because what he wants for us to be is to be captured by something greater than what any false philosophy, false human tradition can put out there for you. He, there is an enemy out there that wants to capture your affection, that wants to capture your attention, that wants to capture your allegiance and make you love it, make you obey its worldview, its idea. They, there's, there is an enemy who wants to capture your allegiance and attention. But being captured by a, a, a greater affection or, or a, greater, a, greater, a, a greater concept, the truth, being captured by that is like trying to appreciate a flashlight in the daylight. Like every kid, I mean, we love, flashlights are a blast at home, right? You know, you make a tent and you make it all dark in there and you get a flashlight out and it's like they're, they're just endless amounts of fun. If you just go buy a flashlight, maybe a flashing one or, you know, maybe a book light, you can just have all kinds of fun. If you get the room dark enough, flashlights are a blast. And you can get ones that do all crazy patterns and stuff now. But you know when those become really pointless is in the middle of the day outside, like, you don't take a flashlight outside and, and play out in the sunshine with a flashlight. Why? Because a greater light is there. And so the lesser light, while it's all attractive inside in the dark, when you, hit, when you get in the sun, when you get in the presence of a real light, lesser lights just kind of, they lose their attractiveness. They're not that impressive. In the broad daylight, all the glimmer of a flashlight is lost. Well, in the same way, he's saying, don't be taken captive by these empty philosophies. Why? How? By being captured by the truth. By being captured by the reality of what the Christian has in Christ. There's a, a biblical illustration I was going to pull out of in Acts 22. Paul has just... Um, preached at, at the temple in Jerusalem and he's gotten a lot of trouble for it and got arrested and they're, they, they, they've thrown him into jail and, and so they're getting ready to, to beat him basically. Uh, verse 25 in Acts 22, when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribute and said, uh, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. What's going on there? Well, evidently, if you had, if you had just kind of no status with the Roman Empire... They could beat you and, and put you in jail and do whatever they want to with you. And it didn't matter because they were the authority. But because Paul was underneath this greater authority as a Roman citizen, it changed everything about what they were going to do to, do to him on this lower level. He was captured by a greater authority. Now, that's just, that's not theologically, but I'm just saying that's the idea of being captured 
by something greater is a defense against being captured by falsehood. What are these then higher claims? What is this great authority? Well, Paul says it in verse 9. In him, that is in Christ, in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. In him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This is an incredible claim to the divinity, the deity, the godness of Jesus. Jesus is not a holy man who walked along the earth and God found pleasure in him and so he kind of elevated him to something. No, Jesus is the God-man. In him, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God in all of his fullness. It's why it's very beneficial today to, to express when you're having God talk, to use Jesus because it, it'll, it'll separate you from all the rest of the God talk that is out there. And you're not dishonoring God by using Jesus. Because in Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwelled bodily. Jesus is God in all of his fullness. And then he goes on. All those who have trusted in him, who have received him, as Paul said, they are then filled with him. They are then filled with all of his fullness. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness, all, the, all that there is in God dwelled in him bodily. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Notice the tense of that statement. He says, and you have been filled in him. What's so incredible about the Christian faith is that it is a faith that is possessed. It is a faith that is, that is attained, that is had. We are not a religion that, is, that has us out working for the hopes that someday we might obtain. If, if I do enough, I might achieve the favor of God. If I, if I just do enough right things, if I, if I obey enough, maybe I'll... Maybe, you know, people will say that all the time. They talk about, you know, facing death. Well, I, I, hope, I hope things will go all right. You know, I hope it'll be okay. And there's this kind of, this understanding in many religions that it's just kind of out, we don't know, and we kind of have hope. Christianity is not a faith of just maybes and whatabouts. And it is a faith that has... And obtaining of this, of this truth. We are not a religion that has us working in the hopes that we will obtain. But if we have Christ, the fullness of who he is is already ours. We live in this fascinating time of the already and the not yet. It's not fully realized in that we do not live in incorruptible bodies yet. Christ has not returned to reign and rule on this earth that he will make new. We still see sin and disease and the effects of sin on this world. So we're in the not yet, but we are also in the already that in him we have been filled. If you are a repentant believer in Jesus Christ, all that God is and all that he is for you is fully yours. We may grow in our understanding of him, but you will not become more gods and neither will, will he become more yours. If you are his, you are fully his. If he is yours, 
you are, he is fully yours. This, this reality, this through faith in Christ, you have been made fully his. The imagery that is used here, talking of the circumcision, it's not talking about anything physical that's going on, but it's talking about the reality of, of a cutting away what is fleshly, what is of no use. You've cut off this fleshly self. This old self has been cut away. Not a physical procedure, but the reality that what is fleshly has been cut off. You no longer possess that part of you that displeases God. He goes on to say that in him you have been baptized. You've been put to death. Not again speaking of your physical baptism necessarily, but of this spiritual reality that you have been put to death. That in him your, your old life is cut away. It is dead. It is no more. Further, you have been now raised with him. You are alive in him. Christ's resurrection is your new life. The life you now live, you live in him. And we'll get into more on that uh, in, in chapter 3. But this is the incredible good news of the gospel, that God makes you fully his in Christ. How does he do this? Well, Paul goes on, tells us how he does this. We were dead in, in our trespasses in the uncircumcision of our flesh, what has God done? Made us alive together with him. Again, that language of union with Christ. Made us alive. It was the work of God, not the work of man. The work of God made us alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, how? How in the world could God forgive, a just God, forgive us all of our trespasses? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. With its legal demands, this he set aside nailing to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? Jesus himself. This is the sacrificial language of the Old Testament coming into the New Testament. Christ is nailed on the cross. This legal demand, this record of death that stood against us and condemned us. Christ took it upon himself. He took the debt that we owed. He took the punishment. We sang in Christ alone. The wrath of God was satisfied. He took the wrath upon himself. Why? So that we could be forgiven of all our trespasses. This record of debt stood against us and condemned us. He removed it, nailing it to the cross. And he disarms the powers and the authorities, puts them to shame by triumphing over them. He is nailed to the cross for the removal of your sin. One of the most... Um, impactful illustrations that, I, that I've heard on this reality is, is with the thought of foster parenting. So many religions and so often in our mind, this idea, we live with this idea that we're basically in God's foster program. And he said, okay, you know, come on in. But, you know, if, if, it gets, if you get too wild and things don't go right, you know, mind your P's and Q's because at any moment we might send you to the next place. You might just, you know, you're here kind of. But you're ready to go back at any moment. I mean, we kind of live with this idea God has made an allowance for us. He cares for us. But honestly, if we mess up too bad, he's going to be done with us. And so we always kind of live waiting for the bad news to come along at any moment. Maybe this is it. Maybe God is, is done with me. But what the gospel does is it puts us through the process, not of foster care, but it's adoption. He, he, he brings us in as children. That we are no longer just there on a temporary basis, but we are brought in to the family. We're no longer trying to prove our value. Union with Christ has us no longer trying to live under this weight and this burden, this terror of trying to prove our value to God. 
but rejoicing in Christ valuing uh, value and, and rescuing us that we would become children of God. This is the good news that Paul wants the Colossian church to anchor themselves to. Anchoring, cap, being captured by this truth is a defense against being captured by all the philosophies that say, here's all the things I want to give you. Here's all the, 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 the wonderful promises of this life. Here's all the benefits we have for you and that the world is trying to capture us with. And he's trying to war against that by capturing us by this truth of in having Christ and having union with him, we are now, we have got the main prize. We have God. There are many deceptive philosophies out there. The false ideas to try to sell you a God plus reality. You can get God plus whatever else. But as soon as you pair the reward of the gospel with God and something else, you immediately diminish the gospel. What you get with Jesus, the big reward of the gospel, what you get is God. What you get is God. The good news of the gospel is that sinners who deserve to be banished from him and under his wrath forever get to walk in his favor. The reward of the gospel is God. He is the goal. He is the prize. It is in him and in him alone that we are brought to fullness. To seek our fullness by searching for God and something more is to say that God is not enough to fill us. And the, and the battle against that is to see clearly that in being captured by having union with Christ, you truly already have the fullness of God. The goal of everything is already yours. This is the incredible truth we must see and anchor ourselves to. I heard this illustration from a, a preacher I like to listen to. It was way back, he, he gave it back in 85, so I think I'm safe to, to say it 35 years ago. I'm going to steal his illustration. But he's talking about imagining this scenario that you live in a walled kingdom, and your, your kingdom has got the walls all around it, and there's an enemy invader who's trying to overtake the, the, the kingdom. And, and there is an enemy, and there is someone who does want to destroy and overrun our city, but the only force against them is a song, and that every time you sing this song, the, the greatest, the, the the greatest, your city. Every time you sing this song of the the greatness of your city, the security of your city. Every time you sing this song, the enemy flees. He can't stand to hear this song. He can't stand to hear you sing these words. And so, if this song is sung, the enemy runs. How often would you sing that song? If that's what's keeping your kingdom safe, is singing of this song. If that's the fortification that keeps your city truly safe, how often do you sing this song? How captured would you be by that song? Well, pretty soon you'd be, you'd be singing it every night before you go to bed. You'd wake up in the middle of the night, you'd be singing that song. You'd get up in the morning and you'd sing that song. You'd find yourself while you're going through your daily tasks in this city, humming along the lines to this song. You'd be captured by that song because it's what's giving you the defenses against the enemy. Pretty soon, that song would just become a perpetual hum in your life, singing this song. Well, that's what the gospel is. That's what this good news of union with Christ is. It is this keeping you from being 
captive, held captive and taken by false philosophies because this song, this truth of who Christ is and what he has done so consumes that when the false pleasures of this life come to us, we have the truth. I already have all I have in Christ. I already have all that I have in Christ. You do have an enemy. And there are many counterfeit joys that would love to run over you. Are we captured by this greater affection? Do we have the eyes to see what really has happened in this union with Christ? That the God who made all things and rules over all things in this supreme Lord and Savior in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily now has brought us into fullness in Him such that no matter what happens in having Him, we have been guaranteed that all things, He who did not spare His own Son, Romans 8 tells us, He who did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things given to us because of our possession of Christ? Are we captured by that truth? So communion is one way that we sing that song. As we gather and, and, and talk about this truth, communion is one way that we sing that song of joy and thankfulness for who our Savior is and what our God has done. Let's set our eyes on Him. Let's make that the song of our lives, who we, what we have in Christ. Do not be captured by the false philosophies of this world. Be captured by the truth of who we have, of who we are and what we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see this morning all that we have in Christ. Just as we read there in Romans 10, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. In having Christ, we have, we have you. We have everything. Filled to the fullness with, with God himself, with you. Father, give us, this is, a, this is something that we cannot conjure up. And I pray that right now as we sit in this room, you would supernaturally give us the eyes to see this. Do the work that only you can do, opening hearts and eyes and ears to see and hear and believe all that you are for us in Christ. That we would not be captured by falsehoods, but truly captured by our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.